the right decision, a fair ruling, justice itself. Such things might be hard to find in the courtrooms of this world. Some nations themselves have earned the poorest of reputations. For example, in Saudi Arabia, Islamic law serves as the basis for all courtroom decisions. Each judge himself decides, based on that law, how a verdict ought to go. It's all up to his own interpretation. The government of Venezuela ranks as one of the most corrupt governments. There, victims are deprived of justice. Offenders roam the streets free. And the rampant bribery of Bangladesh means outcomes there may be bought. And true justice suffers. Under the curse of the fall, justice groans. Judgments fail and judges sin and victims suffer. But there is a time coming when every person, when each person will stand before the judge. He will be objective. His judgments will be based entirely upon clear law. He will be just. Every person will get exactly what he or she deserves. And he will be pure and sinless, not one sliver of corruption in all of his being. Jesus Christ will judge. This morning we will see two outcomes from the judgment of Jesus Christ. And we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we conclude chapter 25. It's the conclusion of a two-chapter explanation Going back to the beginning of chapter 24, the disciples of Jesus have asked him a question. When will the temple be destroyed and when will be the sign of your coming and end of age? Jesus then has spent these two chapters answering those questions. He's speaking primarily with the Jewish people in mind. Interestingly, Matthew does not include his answer to the destruction of the temple the Gospel of Luke does. Matthew instead spends his time recording, when will be the sign of your second coming and end of age? Well, we know that a time of great tribulation will occur. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelation record a seven-year great tribulation. That's seven years of God's wrath poured out upon a fallen world. And halfway through that tribulation, Three and a half years, a, a, an abomination of desolation. He will come and pollute a rebuilt temple. A dynamic world leader, we know him as the Antichrist. He's a phenomenal peacemaker who will orchestrate worldwide events. At that point, his mask will come off. His disguise shattered. And the Jewish people will see him for who he really is. He'll perpetuate a persecution and an attack upon the Jewish nation that goes into overdrive. In chapter 24, verse 21, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. But even during this time, people will come to faith in Jesus. 
In verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus will return. In verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. And we know that our Lord views this, his second coming, as a call to action. A call for you and I to live in light of the end. And he's given us illustrations, splendid word pictures. Uh, He speaks of a fig tree. As the fig tree blooms, be watchful. As the flood came, suddenly be prepared. As the thief creeps in, be alert. Then, in three parables, Jesus has taught us to be faithful and stay hard at work before he comes. Well, our Lord this morning now resumes his explanation, explaining his second coming. In verse 31, he continues, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, let me just stop here for a moment. When Jesus returns, it will be very, very different from his first arrival. Now, so far in Matthew's gospel, we've seen an impoverished Jesus, a Jesus who is poor, a Jesus homeless. We've seen a persecuted Jesus, persecuted by religious leaders, his hometown. In the next three chapters of Matthew, we'll see a man beaten, a victim of Rome. We'll see a man crucified, dying by torture. We'll see a man entombed, placed in a cave. But when Jesus returns, it will be very, very different. Revelation chapter 19 harmonizes right alongside Matthew 25. Verses 11 through 16 of Revelation 19 fit right in if you take a straightforward reading of your Bibles. In verse 11, John writes of this vision, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, And on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the Jesus who's coming back. In our passage, verse 31 carries with it this majesty and royalty and authority and sovereignty and nobility. That is Jesus the Christ. 
In verse 32, he continues, he explains that all the nations are going to be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Uh, Jesus is fully God. He's fully man who comes as king and who rules as judge. We get a sense of that judgment happening in our text here this morning. The Bible describes three different judgments yet to come. There's different views on this. Some believe that these three judgments are all just speaking about one judgment in three different ways. I believe there's three. This one that he speaks of today is rendered at his second coming. It's when Jesus returns to earth, if we're just following along the events of 24 and 25. And then just to give you the big picture, again, we spoke of this a few weeks ago, a big picture of five end times events. Presently, we're looking for a rapture, when the church will be raptured or taken up to heaven. And following that time, then, is this time of great tribulation, a seven-year pouring out of God's wrath. Jesus taught that through Matthew 24. Then comes his second coming. That's the question, remember, the disciples asked back in chapter 24, verse 3. And when this occurs, in 25, verse 31, we read of a judgment, verse 32. This is called the sheep and goats judgment. It's going to determine who enters the fourth big event, the millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 20 details a 1,000-year reign upon earth, followed by the fifth big event, the new heaven and new earth. At his second coming, Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. These will be survivors of that great tribulation. He will separate the believers from the unbelievers. It's not exactly clear why he selected this imagery particularly why the, the goats are unbelievers. Occasionally, the Bible will speak of goats used in, in pagan religion. More recently, Satanism has really uh, launched or, or landed on that as an image of, of Satanism being the goat. By the way, it doesn't appear that Satan is particularly creative. He just steals everything God does and does the opposite. You have your Christ and your Antichrist. And if you have your sheep, then you have your goats. So, But the, the truth of the matter is that most places in the Bible, goats are spoken of pretty favorably. I mean, they're used for sacrifices. They're used for farming. They're used for family living. But maybe it's just this overwhelming use of sheep. Because when we hear about sheep in the Bible, what do we think about? The believers, those who fear God. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Perhaps it's for that simple reason that we need an opposite to the sheep and it's the goats. But the point here is that the sheep are going to come on one side and the goats on the other side. Each represent people. Now, different ideas have been put forth for this separation and caring for flocks, sheep, and goats mixed during the day. At nighttime, they would be separated. Some have wagered that sheep don't mind the cool air, but goats like to huddle together. 
Separation can even take place when the grass grew sparse. But in the end, Jesus is going to give each person his due. Back in chapter 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Of the two outcomes of his judgment, the first concerns the sheep. That's a long introduction. We're at our first point this morning. Verse 34, to the sheep, Jesus says, come. To the sheep, Jesus says, come. In verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We can observe four parts of this verdict rendered by Jesus. The first is the audience. On his right are the sheep. Again, on the right-hand side is the side of favor. It's the side of preference. This is where the sheep or the believers reside in front of Jesus. Notice also the call. The call to them is, is come. This is the type of call that's issued by Jesus that, that moves our hearts. We've heard it before. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Oh boy, to be, to be within earshot of him saying that on that day, that, that's heart moving. It's the same Greek word, follow me, come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. How about this one? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Boy, that moves a heart. Hearing our Lord speak to us in that way, through the canon of Scripture, what a call of mercy. In our passage, this is a call connected to the word inherit. That's actually the command. Come, inherit. This is a command. Come and inherit what God's made for you. Jesus has elaborated exactly on who should come as well. It's the third part here. You who were blessed by my Father. You who are blessed by my Father. There's a couple of relationships happening in this verse. There's a relationship between Jesus and God. God is the Father of Jesus the King. God gives Jesus the kingdom. I believe Daniel 7 has captured this moment. One like a son of man was coming, that's Jesus. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Notice also the relationship between the sheep and the father. The sheep are blessed. God has given them an entire kingdom to inherit. And notice the relationship to one another. The you in this verse is plural. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you all. These believers are coming out of the tribulation. And suffering binds people together. Persecution and trials and adversity, that has a way of gluing hearts, of knitting souls. I'd say the church is at her strongest when she's suffering. Her people need one another. They bond. You and I will come in here and we will enjoy worship, but we've never worshiped like if we suffer together. 
Just as peace and comforts will make Christians independent and self-reliant, suffering bonds them together. They need one another. Worship takes on new meaning. We start to read the New Testament of the persecution of the church in new and profound ways. So just imagine then the value of verse 34 to those who've just been through hell on earth, who've come through that great tribulation. Look at their destination. It's the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God gets all credit for our eternity. Victoria mentioned that this morning. There's something about God calling us. If God hadn't called us, would we really have called upon him? Ephesians chapter 1 verse verse 4 declares that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now Matthew 25, Christ declares that God prepared a kingdom for his elect before the foundation of the world. We serve a God who is not reacting or learning or operating in afterthoughts. We serve a God who's laid it out, who has lovingly called us into his kingdom. Not that we loved, but that he loved us. So why are the sheep given this invitation? Why do they inherit the kingdom? Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now there's a strong likelihood that in reading this passage, we might conclude we are saved by works. That we are saved by charity. That we're saved by deeds of mercy. That you and I go to heaven only by philanthropy. What does Jesus say? Those who do these things, they enter the kingdom. Elsewhere, the Bible teaches salvation by faith. That people go to heaven by believing. Paul writes to Ephesus, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Luke records in Acts, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus speaks in John, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. So how does one enter heaven? Is it by faith or is it by works? If it is by works, how many must I perform? What if I miss a day? What if I miss a week? What if I give out a lot of food, but I don't do a lot of prison visits? What's enough? We are saved by faith, not by works. 
Simple trust in Jesus will save your soul to heaven. But this faith, it changes a person. As one of the reformers has said, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. That means that these good works have a place in the Christian life. That good works accompany saving faith. Verse 34 reinforces this. It contains what we might call a hidden clue to this question of faith and works. God prepared the kingdom for the sheep from the foundation of the world. Way before they had any chance to do anything good or bad, God prepared your eternal home. And that's what's happening in our passage. The deeds of the sheep accord with their faith. And this happens elsewhere, by the way. The treatment of fellow believers being a good litmus test for the state of our spiritual soul. James chapter 2, verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And to go even further, as we read our Bibles and we read of these judgments that God will render, as we read of the day when we stand before Jesus, there is a correlation between the judgment of Jesus and our works. Jesus judges based on works. Revelation 20, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, the death, the, 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 and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So how can God judge based on works? Because faith is seen in works. J.C. Ryle's written that this last judgment will be a judgment according to evidence that the works of men are witnesses by which they will be brought forward. And the question to be ascertained will not merely be what we said, but what we did. Not merely what we professed, but what we practiced. Do you practice your profession this morning? If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, is there a, a life to back that up and prove it? We see many ways to serve in this passage this morning. There's a diversity of needs. Food and drink and clothing and hospitality and visitation. God's given each one of us uh, uh, some, some form of, of residence or home, and he's given us some money and some time, all that we need to put our faith into action. Did you observe this morning, too, just the, this basic oneness of the needs? The needs listed are all basic. They're fundamental to human existence. They're basic human needs. They can all be accomplished with relative ease. Turn on a faucet, 
open a fridge, go through a door. There's also a readiness in this passage this morning. I noticed that the sheep are just living life. A need comes along, and they meet it. In verses 37 to 39, we might argue that they're even a bit surprised at the judge's ruling. It seems as though they're just going about their business, not really thinking a lot about it. They had no idea who they actually served. To our broader context, they live in light of the end. They are alert and prepared and faithful. And notice the recipient. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. It was Jesus who they served. You see, when we serve the Lord's people, it's as though we're serving the Lord himself. That's how Jesus views it. Jesus does place an emphasis on fellow believers in this passage, serving other Christians. Paul's going to agree with this, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, John will question God's love in us if we're not helping one another. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide with him? Now, we do, of course, want to extend love and mercy beyond the family of God. This is not a call to to close our doors and plywood our windows. I like how John Piper said it, quite simply. We are drawn to show mercy to some people because they are Christians. We are drawn to show mercy to some people because they are not Christians. You never know what showing mercy to an unbeliever might do that might win them to Christ. But I'd say all of this discussion aside, we serve and we show mercy because we are sheep of a shepherd. To, to, to go back a few verses into chapter 24, remember those who were given the five talents, those who were given the two talents, those with lamps lit, those ready for the return of Jesus. We extend mercy because we've received it. But not so the goats. If in the first 10 verses, Jesus says to the sheep, come. In our next five, Jesus says to the goats, depart. It's the second outcome of the verdict of Jesus Christ when he will render judgment one day. In verses 41 through 45, to the goats, depart. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they, will, then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and do not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you, 
to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It may sound familiar. It's the same scenario played out with the sheep, now played out with the goats. The goats are now people who are damned to hell. Uh, To the left of the Lord are the goats. We would call these people unbelievers or non-Christians. These are men and women who did not come to Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, confessing sin, receiving forgiveness. These are people who never put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The instruction to them is depart. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Jesus is directing this. And just as the sheep had a relationship with Jesus, so too do the goats. They are, quote, accursed ones. These people are not children of God. They're not in the family of God. They're not friends of Jesus. They're not saints. They're not brothers. They're not sisters. They're not Christians. They are cursed by God. And in this text this morning, we see that throughout eternity, their closest relationship is not to God, it's to Satan and his demons. Why the condemnation? Verses 42 and 43, it's the same opportunities we saw with the sheep. But the unbelievers did nothing. You gave me nothing to eat. You gave me nothing to drink. You did not invite me in. You did not clothe me. You did not visit me. Last time we discussed the parable of the talents. Do you remember the third slave? What was his sin? He did nothing. He received what God gave him and he sat on it. He buried it in the backyard. We call these sins of omission. Omission. These are things that God calls people to do, but they don't do them. The goats of our passage appear to be self-centered. They're consumed with their own lives. They're unwilling to help out others and see their destination. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God governs hell. And just as he's prepared a kingdom for his people, He's also prepared an eternal fire for those who are not. Initially, you see in this verse that it was prepared for Satan and his demons. That is to say that they don't manage hell. Satan is not in charge of hell. Satan doesn't torment unbelievers. The just wrath of a holy God floods eternity. Hell is hot because God is holy. The extent of God's holiness determines the duration and the extent of hell. God is infinitely holy. And hell is eternal, meaning it lasts forever. Annihilationism is a view that says people will be extinguished after they've sufficiently paid the price for their sins. They'll suffer in hell for a time but cease to exist. That view is wrong. In verse 41, Jesus calls it the eternal fire. Look at verse 46. In that verse, Jesus is comparing unbelievers to believers. 
These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And notice there that Jesus speaks of both punishment and life. Both are referred to as eternal. The word meaning cannot change from one location to the other. It must mean the same for both punishment and life. So if punishment's going to cease after a time, then life will cease after a time as well. But if the life is eternal, then the punishment is eternal. How must not be diminished? In verse 30, Jesus described it as the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. To reside in the pit of hell is to suffer an eternal blindness, the darkness being pitch black. Those confined there will never gaze upon the beauty of heaven. They will never see again loved ones who've believed upon Jesus and gone to be with him in heaven. Each individual scream will be drowned out by the chorus of other screams. The cries of souls shrieking and screeching and weeping, it repeats one loop. The smell must be of the worst rancid rot, deteriorating, decaying, decomposing. It's the smell of burning refuse. When Jesus spoke of hell, he pointed to a valley outside Jerusalem called the Gehenna Valley. And it was a constant fire where they were burning trash and refuse. And oh, to have one sip of water, the mouth parched white, will find its only refreshment from the salt of the tears running well-worn tracks down the cheek, off the lip, and into the mouth. When one burns to death, it's called immolation. The most agonizing aspect is the first stage of this death. It's when the skin and the nerves begin to burn. Once that happens, the body feels a little pain. Jesus speaks of an eternal fire. It's an immolation that never passes stage one. The teeth clamp down or they grind against one another. It's an indescribable pain. And the mind will never sleep. The soul is always conscious, never to forget the words of Jesus the King. Depart from me, accursed one. Never forget that hell is real and completely avoidable. Jesus Christ came to save you from an eternity in hell. You will never have to suffer in this way at all. Fully God, Jesus lived a perfect life. And he was crucified, he died upon a cross, but his death, it was no normal death. Something profound happened when Jesus died. His death paid the price that you owe for your sin. Those who come to him believing, believing that he is God, believing that he died for them, they pay no price. Jesus had paid that price. Their destination is heaven. And the Bible says that for all who repent and turn from their sin, for all who believe upon Jesus, they will be with heaven, or they will be with Christ in heaven, that hell is out of the picture forever. Will you believe upon Jesus this morning? Are you determined to avoid hell?
Jesus welcomes you in if you believe upon him. The other morning, I had stepped outside my door, and I was greeted by a, a massive branch of a fir tree. We live out in Sutton Valley, so this is not that unusual of an occurrence when it's windy or weather conditions are poor. It fell into the yard overnight from hundreds of feet up. And this has happened before at the house, shattering a roof shingle, cratering the earth. One time, one fell perfectly between the car and the deck. But it reminded me that it's only a matter of time. One of these bad boys eventually was going to hit the house. It's going to hit the car. It's going to hit something. And as a precaution, I just called our insurance guy to make sure we recovered, which we were. (laughs) But, But here's the point. The end is coming. I guarantee you, it's, I promise the end is near. And Jesus is going to judge. And the question we must ask in light of chapter 24 and chapter 25 is, are we living in light of the end? And if you're covered, to use that word, does your life prove it? I hope that we find our relationship with Jesus being more than just saved from hell. That's important. But boy, to get to know God in the flesh, to have a relationship with him, boy, that's so sweet and so meaningful. I hope that we live today in a way that reflects the gratitude of what God has done for us. I hope we live that way deeply, and I hope we live that way daily. Because in Christ, you were blessed by God. Let us live in light of the end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the teaching you've given us. Thank you for your kindness and your grace. The way you've gently handled questions and answered them so wisely. I pray that you would give the eyes of our hearts eyesight, to see the truths of your word and to know how to apply them. I pray that you would grant us a grace to live in light of the end. Thankful, profoundly grateful for what you're saving us from and what you're saving us to. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.